Live from Gusto's, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, we're in a very shiny kitchen. Wow, this feels fancy. Uh, did we dress up enough for this, Nick? No. Uh, I don't know if I have the palate for this place. Do you have the budget? That's my next question. Also not. But we're in the kitchen. We can just steal it without. Well, I guess you shouldn't steal. That's you should, not. No, no. We're not, we're not rats, I know. Nick. Yeah, you're right. How dare you? Especially since we have a guest with us today. Yes. Feels funny calling her a guest. But first, let's mention, what, what is this podcast, Nick? This is Derail Train of Thought, your premier podcast on storytelling for the creator and the consumer. I am one of your hosts, Nick Hayden. And I am the other host, Timothy Deal. And with me is my lovely, beautiful wife, Janelle. Hello, everyone. You've heard her before. If you're a faithful listener of The Weekly Hijack, she was around for our Lost episodes, and um, you might have heard her instant reactions on Let's Finally Watch This. Yes, and this is her first time on a podcast trip, like transporting. How was it? That's right. What do you think of it so far, the casting process? When we get cast somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's a strange feeling. I, I hope all of my atoms are intact and like my body is entirely put together. I have to believe that I am because... Clearly, all of my olfactory mechanism is working. I can smell so many wonderful things. Yes, it does smell lovely in here for sure. It's a very classy restaurant. Did you look out the window there? It looks like we might be in Paris even. I'll I'll take it. We can't always identify where we wind up, so this is nice. This is nice, yeah. Ah. (laughs) You you lucked out. This is one of the nicer places we've been to on our- Much nicer. Thank you, podcast. It was very nice of you to come to Paris when I was the guest. <laughs> I think Natasha will be jealous. Yes. <laughs> She'd rather go to Ireland, but... Ah, uh, well, okay. Anyways, um, I guess with that, we'll just go on into our story school. So today we are discussing. Well, should we have the, our guest introduce this idea? This is actually kind we of might her as well. Yeah, we, thought we, process. We thought it was due time. Janelle's been a fan of the podcast since even before we were married. Not that she knew about the podcast until she, we met. And I mean, it would be nice if we met through the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yes, I thought it was high time that she was on. And so I asked her, "What would you like to talk about?" And she decided she wanted to talk about food and stories. Because, uh, Janelle, I think it's safe to say you are a foodie, correct? I think I qualify as a foodie. I think there are people I know that are foodies to a more hardcore extent than I am. Like, they make their own yogurt and they make their own cheese. I'm not at that level yet. And there are compromises I'm willing to make on occasions for certain purposes. But food is, like, my number two passion after music. So... That and my memory are the two things that qualify me to talk about food and stories on this podcast. Yes, she did a lot of preparation for this, more than I did, and more than we normally do. (laughs) (laughs) Don't reveal our secrets to him. (laughs) Well, yeah, depending on the topic. But uh, Janelle has has assembled a uh, collection of categories of how food gets used in stories. Which I thought was actually fascinating. Like, when I heard we were going to do this topic, I'm like, that's a really good idea. It was not on my radar at all, and I think we have a lot we can chew on. Yeah, I was. Har, gonna, har, har. I was. I could tell you were looking for the right uh, verbiage there. It's like yeah. unpack or unwrap, uh, <laughs> taste. 
Exactly. <laughs> Sample. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. So should I just yeah, jump so, on yeah, in? Give okay. us a, give us your first category. Let's, or I don't know how this how you have it split up here. Sure. Yeah. Well, originally I had three big categories with three subcategories, and then I was counting my examples, and I thought could probably just be seven categories just okay. straight on their own. So yeah, the first category that I was able to come up with was stories in which food is the subject matter. Okay, like give us a good example. What's a good example of that? Mm, well, this lovely kitchen that we're in okay. is one of them. Food is subject matter. I mean, like food occupies a central place in what the story discusses. Because like, I mean, in Ratatouille, the whole idea that food is a art form is kind of major to the whole process. And then the fact that the climax basically solved through a good dish is interesting. Through a good meal. Yeah. Yeah, I think it certainly was for me, and I wouldn't be surprised it's it's a family of movie that it may have been your first introduction to, okay, well, how can food be an art? What does yeah. gourmet food actually mean? Because for kids, I mean, I, I was this way. Food was an obligation as opposed to something I look forward to. It's like, huh? well, my son, it's just like, lunch takes so much time. I could be doing stuff. So that's sort of a thing. And, and right, too, it was such a fascinating movie, too, because, like, I saw the preview, like, food and cook and, like, kitchens and rats. And why is this even, <laughs> this is not going to be any good at all. And then it was a fabulous movie. Well, that's good to know. Get some other. Are there some other examples you have of that type? Yes. I will say that this food as subject matter is the smallest category okay, I could yeah. think of for, I think, fairly obvious reasons. Like, you could probably make a lot of movies where food is the central point, but there's just so much to talk about in a story. I mean, I guess it is very specialized. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of it, but like some of your other examples I see in your list is Julie and Julia, which is about... A cook. So if if your main character is a chef of some sort, then that's very specific. I never th- have really thought of like movies that food's the main topic, but it's weird that we won't have more of them because it's a major part of everyone's life, and we do it multiple times a day. And hopefully, we you know it's not just this when we were kids. It was just like this transactional meal, you know. So hopefully, it's something it's main from God to be something to enjoy. And so, yeah, it's interesting that we don't actually have a little more about it sometimes. So we're a little more, at least in America, a little more action-oriented. Yeah, I think uh, we'll get to this in another of my categories. Food is important plot point makes a little more sense in Mm -hmm. that respect. Yeah. But I think food in stories, it's kind of like music in stories. Mm. It's everywhere. And it's, in one sense, it's an essential part of the package. Yeah. But really, you're not going to focus on it unless... The main character is a cook or yeah. the main character is a musician. That's true. Runs a restaurant or, yeah, some sort of food job. Yes. Uh, another one on the food is the subject matter is The Hundred Foot Journey. This is a movie about some Indian immigrants that have to emigrate to France. Okay. And they open up an Indian restaurant and there's people of different cultures encountering each other. Conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between the French people that meet these Indian immigrants and some of their cultures show in their styles of cooking. There's a lady that runs a French restaurant in the countryside that's got one Michelin star and she's going for the second Michelin star. Big, big, big deal. And she butts heads with the father of this Indian family. There's a scene where he's railing at her because this French chef is teaching his Indian son about French classical cooking. And he says... When you've got something good, you don't sprinkle it in, you spoon it in. <laughs> so food is uh, 
representative of the clash of cultures almost. Yeah, in a in a big way. I guess that's probably true with a lot of these movies that where food's the main subject matter is that food also stands in symbolically for something else. You know, it's an expression of the cook's character or about the theme of creativity or something else that so everyone identifies with it, not just the cook. Yeah, that's true. In Julie and Julia, Julie's exploration of food is she's also exploring Julia Child's life, and she's exploring herself in a sense. Okay. What I want to complete something, or I work at this hard insurance company job that sucks the life out of me, and I want to do something, something that's for me, and something that that gives life. Okay, that makes sense. So the last one that I have on this food is subject matter list is Le Chocolat, which, Nick, you just reminded me of. Well, my wife reminded me of it, but yes, I have seen it. That's a European film, isn't it, originally? Or maybe maybe not. I'm not sure. Maybe it's more indie. But is the, I was curious, is the, I forget, the 100-yard, what is that? 100-foot journey. 100-foot journey. Is that a European film? I'm not sure. Okay, I was just curious. I'm just, I guess I'm curious just because I wonder if, I get the sense, and this might be wrong, that European film would be more likely to make that a subject matter than Americans. We tend to be a little more like utilitarian sometimes with our food. Possibly. And uh, I was going to mention that when I got to another category. Okay, go for it. About um, why do we never see our superheroes eat? <laughs> Except at the very end of The Avengers. And it's kind of used for comedic effect. Which is another of my categories. Okay, so okay. I, I feel like we better get on to one get... of these other categories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so the next one I thought was most worth addressing was food as a plot point, either an important plot Mm -hmm. point or a semi-important plot point. And out of those, I have 18 examples. (laughs) Wow. Well, this is just a handful of them, and we'll we'll riff off that. Yeah, yeah. First one I could think of most obviously is Oliver Twist. Okay. Please, sir, I want some more. Mm -hmm. And doesn't that get him kicked out of the orphanage or something? Oh, I've I've read and seen it, but I actually forget exactly. But yeah, it caused some sort of issue. I mean, whenever I think of Oliver Twist, that's all, though, you... that's all I think of. Yeah. Like, I don't really know that much of the story beyond what I probably know Oliver and Company more than I actually know the original story. I mean, I guess in some ways, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with the chocolate bar and the golden ticket. I mean, it's not really about food. It's just the... The opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Would that kind of fit into this category where it's about food is representing something else, like something that they need? Sure. I mean, something in the story happens because of a chocolate bar. Yeah, exactly. I think that counts. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Great Expectations is another one. Pip is told by this mm. magwitch yeah. to go get him some food. That's true. And then he becomes very terrified. He's like, I just stole, and he's all afraid of getting and, caught. And, and it causes the entire plot to happen. <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> because magwitch is so thankful that he gave him food and sustained him. Gives him great expectations. So when I thought about the food as an important plot point business, I was thinking partly of food shows up and f- something happens because mm-hmm. of food, but also the absence of food motivates something. Um, uh, yeah. So Oliver Twist kind Oliver of Twist. is like that too. This character is starving, therefore they do something. Mm-hmm. Midwife's Apprentice fits into that category. I doubt either of you would know. This is a book I read in middle school, I think, that it follows this street urchin that becomes apprentice to a midwife and she basically i think gets to do that because she lives on the street and she's starving and she just knocks on the door of the midwife's house and asks for something to eat okay and the midwife is this stern hard lady but for some reason she she takes her in and then the whole rest of the book happens okay 
driven by hunger sort of. Which is a really good motiv- motivator. I mean, in some ways, that's the start of Les Mis, is that he, he, he oh, stole yeah. a loaf of bread to get to jail the first time, and then he, the second time, I guess, I think he steals that just so he can get a job, so it's not so much food-oriented the second time, but yeah, he was arrested the first time for stealing bread for his family. Yeah, it's a common plot, th- like, everyone can identify with this. It's a basic need. It's and a just, basic need, yeah. you know. Sometimes you just have to be one step ahead of the hitman. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, that one of my greatest movies. Yes, <laughs> fabulous. So I'll just touch on a few more that I guess are a bit uh, either relevant or unique. In Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, I think, there's that scene where Frodo and Sam and Gollum are climbing up a mountain and Gollum is trying to do what he wants and he takes out all the rest of the food and tosses it down Mm -hmm. the mountain and he's doing that to frame Sam. Mm-hmm. Which I, I seem to remember as a pet peeve of yours. In the well, movie. yeah. Well, pet peeves of, yeah, anything they change was a pet peeve of mine. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> oh. Lord of the Rings has several food-oriented scenes. I don't know if you have them in some other categories as well, probably. So, yes. Oh, I got, I got a ridiculous example. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Tim, you'll appreciate this. The Wild Wild World of Catwoman. There's a soup that makes you dance. <laughs> 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 wow. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. For all you, all our uh, Mystery Science Theater fans. Yeah. Sorry. I had to just throw it in there because it's, a, it's a technically a plot point. Yes. In a plotless movie. In a very ridiculous. I mean, it's the most memorable scene in that movie. It is. That's that's absolutely true. All right. Go ahead. So this one just seems unique to me. The movie Lion is just called Lion. Hmm. Because the main character's name is Sheru, which in his language means lion. Okay. It's a story of an Indian boy that has the traumatic experience of getting onto a train that isn't taking passengers, and the train takes him, like, three days away from his homeland, and he's five or six and can't read. Oh. And so then he gets adopted by an Australian family, and on and on and on. He grows up, and he forgets he was ever from India. And then one day, he's at a party, and his Indian friends bring this... Indian dish of these certain kinds of pastries and they're decorated a certain way. And suddenly he remembers I was from India and it was all that long ago. And that starts his whole journey of trying to remember where he was from and find his mother. That's interesting. I mean, because food does have that sort of attachment to memory and that's a really good use of that in that movie. Originally, I was going to bracket this and a few others under incidental detail. There are a lot of, most of the examples I can think of, food is an incidental detail, but it's still doing something. Mm, Okay. Like, give give us an example. When food fleshes out a fantasy world. Okay. Or the world that's in the story. For example, in Avatar, the water tribe people have very distinctive food, and Aang tries it and he hates it and then pretends to like it, but like sea prune soup or something like that. So it's sort of the cultural expression of fancy, or I guess even non-fancy, depending on the how foreign it is. Yes. Other ones, food can embellish or make more real or put more flesh on what is the nature of the fantasy world mm-hmm. that you're in. Another good example that I can think of is Hook. Have you guys seen Hook? Yes. So remember the scene when... Um, the lawyer panning is eating with the lost boys and he can't see any of the food they're yeah. eating. And then he finally just like starts playing with them and pretends to fling food off of a spoon and suddenly he can see the it's food. It's a pretty great scene. Yeah. I guess you could say even with Lembus bread, we, we were just talking about Lord of the Rings and food and the Elvish food. That seems to be at least something that 
seems very distinctive to Middle Earth. I always think of like, oh, one small bite will yeah. satisfy you for a while. What's interesting in some of Sanderson's, Brandon Sanderson's books, like there's a lot of curry. Like it's just like the way the world like has evolved that everyone like eats different types of curry. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I, again, it's a, it actually makes a lot of sense in some ways. Rice and is kind of a basic staple. So, uh, okay. So it's I mean, a different way of the fantasy world evolving, I guess, than our European style. Okay, it's interesting. Well, does his fantasy worlds have an Indian flair? Because Brandon Sanderson's not Indian. No, so. I, and I can't remember. I don't think that's. I don't think that's in Stormlight Archive. But I think it's in some of his other books. Huh. Okay. But I can't remember offhand. Kind of a scientific idea. Yeah, just but it, it flushes out in a unique way that you're like, oh, I would never have thought of that necessarily for my Midwestern upbringing. Sure. That is interesting. Let's see others. What about this? You have Redwall on your list, cause I, and I think of Brian Jocks as an uh, author who really loves, and he's talked about it before, in, or he did talk about it in, in interviews, about how like whenever they would read about... Uh, and then they had a feast, and he's like, well, I want to know exactly what they had in that feast. So in all of his books, whenever they eat, you know exactly what's on the menu. <laughs> Hobbits are back on the menu. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I wonder, and I don't, maybe this is going into another category, but it does seem like in some of these more traditional fantasy things, like Brian Jocks, Tolkien, Lewis, you have eating as, a, as almost just a celebratory moment. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just this sort of like it captures the fancy word, but also just capture this sort of I mean, it, it is a normal life. Any sort of celebration you have or even not celebration, ceremony you have usually has some sort of food attached to it. And I think it just adds that sense of fellowship and realism and camaraderie to a lot of these fellowship oriented fantasies. That's true. I can think of a lot of times in books where they maybe they've just met a character mm-hmm. or they they fought to test each other's metal or something and then they're best buds and they have a meal or like even like romantic comedies or just other things like they'll all sit down to meet the parent you know they'll and there's always this awkward conversation afterwards and something blows up but i mean it's always <laughs> around the the kitchen table it does seem like a very human nature sort of thing to do. Like when we want to get to know someone, we have them over for lunch or mm-hmm. coffee or, or coffee yeah. or, or something. We're eating or we're consuming something while we're getting to know them. And, you know, Jesus did this as part of his ministry, too. And, you know, the Pharisees would complain about he would go eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners and all this kind of I mean, stuff. I mean, the church does this all the time. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it feels very true to life when, it, when we see that in the story. I guess then it's weird, like you say, the superheroes never eat. Apparently, they never have time for, like, friends at all, you know, to go and, like, just they have time. To, they have time to drink, at least, <laughs> depending on their movie. Thor, especially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I have to mention one more food fleshing out the fantasy world business, and that is Beauty and the Beast. Mm. In that case, the food's dancing in front of you. <laughs> It does make it more fantastical when your uh, kitchenware is presenting your food to you. Then you know you have to fellowship because they're saying be our guest. So <laughs> Beef ragout, cheese souffle, pie and pudding en flambe, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So I'll continue on. I've noticed, too, that sometimes what the incidental food is doing is pointing out a character quirk. Mm. One of my favorite examples is in a movie, Major Pain, that I still need to show my husband because (laughs) for some odd reason it feels important to my childhood. It's about this over-the-top hard-boiled army guy that goes to teach like a middle school ROTC program. Okay. And he meets the school counselor and she's about as opposite him as you can get. Very feminine and graceful and nurturing. And he's like, 
burying the kids in the ground and watering their heads. <laughs> but anyway, there's a scene where they go out to dinner and he, they get the food and he just gobbles the whole meal up in five seconds yep. and thrusts the fork down and says, that was a mighty fine dinner. <laughs> Ain't you going to eat? And she says, my stomach's a little upset. <laughs> Aww. That reminds me, just a similar thing. We were watching the, so there's Mighty Ducks TV show on at Disney Plus. We're watching with the kids. In the second season, there's super competitive hockey coach and then the like, let's just have fun hockey coach. And they're, they're having baits all the time. And she's like, don't you just wait, raid the kitchen for ice cream? I'm like, no. no. And then later on, they catch him doing that. And it's kind of this character moment sort of thing. Like, oh, you've loosened it up a little bit. You're raiding the kitchen for ice cream. <laughs> so I know that, that your example reminds me of that sort of. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The In some cases, the food illustrates something that's funny about the character or our way a character's growing mm-hmm. or something that's just odd or distinctive about them. Is it despicable me that as the minions? Yes. And one of them's always saying banana? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah, just quirky <laughs> spoo. Um, <laughs> That's a Babylon 5 thing. Yeah, sorry, I had to throw that in there. Excellent. Oh, so as we're mentioning old uh, hijacks, there's the peanut butter scene in Lost, uh, which yes. is not an actual peanut butter, but where Charlie's just, or yeah. Charlie and Claire are yeah. Yeah, pretending he, he, to eat peanut butter, and it's a, it's a bonding character moment. Because Claire really misses, you know, they're playing wreck survivors, and she's really missing peanut butter, and there's no peanut butter on this island. So he finds this jar or something, just pretends to lick it, and, like, you can kind of, like... You kind of taste it when he's doing it. You like. really do, yeah. <laughs> it's very effective, and she appreciates it. Oh, yes. Other distinctive examples. If you all have seen Runaway Bride... Long time ago. Okay. I've not seen that one. See, Tim, you just haven't seen any of these romance things. I can't imagine why. (laughs) The main character, the bride that keeps running away, at some point gets asked by the reporter that she ends up with how she likes her eggs. And, well, he's investigating from everyone else, and he discovers that the way she liked her eggs was the way whoever guy she was with liked her eggs. Okay. Which means that she was just refusing to have a preference in favor of whatever guy, because she was... Just thought she had to meld to whatever the guy wanted. That's a really interesting, clever way to, you know, to talk about her character personality. And it's true to life, I think, for some people. Like, what do you want? Oh, whatever you're having. Wasn't there an illustration you used from J. Michael Straczynski that was like about a man and a wife and how she buttered her toast or something? Or it was like, the difference between them calling it jam or jelly and like they had a certain uh, way to saying it and it was a very specific... Yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, detail. strong feelings about it. For some yeah, very reason. strong detail, you know. And those little details about how someone wants their their food or their breakfast or is something that shows you know the person, mm, you know. Sure. Like, oh, he only likes it this way. Like, don't put the mayonnaise on, you know. Yeah. I like that as a, a more specific sort of character quirk as opposed to when you first mentioned this, I, I was thinking of like the stereotypical like fat character who just loves to eat all the mm. time, constantly like chewing stuff. And in the right way that could be i mean i see you have winnie the pooh here on your list because <laughs> him and honey but there's a lot more nuanced ways you can do this i think mm-hmm. the series atypical is about an autistic young man and there's one episode in which he goes to spend the night at a friend's house for the first time and that's a big deal mm-hmm. because he's slightly autistic and like can he handle the change of routine yeah and one of the things that his mama does to help him is he tells his host he really likes buttered noodles. Okay. So that's one of his things. Buttered noodles. Buttered noodles. My kids would dig that. Yeah. 
other big thing that I could see food doing was that it can humanize the characters. Mm. Or like, as we've been talking about how food is such a basic common human need. Sometimes I think of food as sort of grounding these characters into humanness that we can relate to on that basic level. And I kind of had a second title of this as Domestic Scenes, which have already got something of a mention. But Swiftly Tilting Planet starts Mm -hmm. with Thanksgiving dinner. That's true, because it's a a chaotic book, but it's rooted in this family dining room, really, Mm -hmm. and everywhere else. But there is where it's rooted. Yeah, it keeps returning to that. Other example, um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children go to the beavers, Mm -hmm. and, and the beavers feed them. Yep, and then and then they're friends, and that's really the last safe spot they have for quite a while. So at the top of this list, you had the boxcar children. Is that because of when we talked about this, or did you grow up with that series? I think I read maybe one book or half a book. Okay, see, I, I read all the original ones. That was kind of my go-to at the library for you know, a certain age. And that always stuck out to me because they tend to go on vacations and interesting trips around. The, and, but it tend to be usually either by themselves or with their, their uncle or something. But the kids, I mean, the, the oldest are probably in their teens. But they always made a point of, like, showing when they made a meal, which kind of stood out to me. It's like, oh, they're doing this very grown-up thing of, like, cooking. Because, mm-hmm. like, and it, it does feel that kind of domestic setting of – and you get interested in, like – Okay, what are they going to do? How are they fending for themselves? I mean, in some ways, this is maybe I'm maybe this doesn't quite connect, but I had thought of it earlier. But like in Two Towers, there's a scene where Sam and Frodo and Gollum cook that rabbit stew. I mean, this whole mm. I think the whole chapter is called that, isn't it, or something like that? Probably. Stew, but but even Gollum has a sense of you know that's probably the place where the three of them seem to connect the best. It seems like in my memory. Well, I mean, it's been a while in this in the movie that there's a bit of discussion where Gollum wants to eat raw fish. And, yeah. And Sam wants to eat like potatoes and potatoes. potatoes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, but then they have that it's a domestic scene in the middle of this like trudging <laughs> trudging through the wilderness. Yeah. Yes. I've got lots of things in this category and here's kind of an anti example of this a similar thing in Devil Wears Prada. Okay. Miranda Priestley, yeah, she sends Andy to go get her lunch or something like that. And then Andy goes to all this trouble in, where are they, New York City? To get this very specific thing that Miranda Priestley ordered, she does all this work and comes back and then her boss doesn't even eat it, Mm. something like that. And Andy's relationship with food changes through the meal. And then, oh, I just remembered, I don't know where this fits in, but... There's that other, the coworker that Andy has that um, is starving herself to go to Paris and she talks about her new diet that's very effective. I don't eat. And when I feel like I'm about to faint, I eat a cube of cheese. (laughs) Would you put in this category too, those scenes in movies where like the plate gets cold and they have to cover it up and move it out? Oh, because they've... Like they're 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 waiting for someone when to come home or something and they're late. Or the long table. Yeah. Where fits. there's like people on both sides. Uh-huh. Sure. I just, okay. I just thought of something from a romantic comedy. You might be proud of me, although I don't know if you know this one. And I don't know if it goes under this category under the character quirks, although I guess it's kind of 
could be either. But in two weeks' notice, the two main characters are like Rich Millionaire and who is Hugh Grant, and then Sandra Bullock is his secretary or whatever. They spend a lot of time together. So much at some point, they're at a restaurant and they're talking about something else. But they're each splitting up what's in their salad, like because he doesn't like certain things that she'll eat, and he, and, <laughs> and he doesn't like certain things that she'll eat, and they're, they're doing this just kind of unconsciously because they both know each other's likes and dislikes so well at this point. I have not seen that movie. Congratulations, Tim. <laughs> good job. Yeah, I think that'd be a good character moment. Let's see what else should I mention. Um, this was kind of neat. Are, are you thinking of the pineapple scene? Yeah. The Studio Ghibli film Only Yesterday. Okay, which I have not seen. We only saw this yesterday. Yesterday. <laughs> Actually, I think it was two days ago, but it's close. <laughs> How about that? So, story of a single young lady that goes to the countryside and remembers her childhood, basically. Mm -hmm. And one of her memories is of trying a fresh pineapple for the first time. Okay. And there are several dinner scenes in Only Yesterday because it's all about her remembering her childhood and lots of family moments happen at the dinner table. But this pineapple, they're so excited when they see it and she's jumping up and down with excitement to eat it and the older sister finally learns how to cut and they do, and they all sit down around the table to try it. And then we're not sure if it's not not ripe or something, but it's gross and it's hard. And no one likes it. No one likes. It. Okay, you know, Stu Ghibli often uses food. I mean, my daughter was writing a little paragraph for school about Ponyo, and I she was showing it to me tonight. But you know, her eating ham is like this giant, this big, this deal. big deal. Like yeah. mm, ham. And um, I always remember there's in uh, even in Castle in the Sky, there's a moment where they're on the run from pirates and the government and all this stuff, but they pause in this cave to have a, a little meal of like a sandwich with fried egg. Mm-hmm. And I always think that's a strange thing, but I hear other people like doing that kind of combination. And I had to mention here just because I always ask my kids about, you know, we're going to talk about food and movies and it feels like, well, you have to bring up Castle Cagliostro when he downs like that entire meal and a half real quick to heal himself. He's, <laughs> it's my, it's my son's favorite movie. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently you, the way to recover from a lot of blood loss is just to eat a lot of food. <laughs> it's a ridiculous scene. <laughs> it's a ridiculous movie, but sorry, That's, sidetrack. Sounds like a boy kind of response yes. actually. <laughs> so second to last one is comedy. Mm. Food as comedy. Boy, you can make some funny things happen when you use food. In Onward, there is a mm-hmm. scene close to the beginning where the younger brother is getting ready for school and he's trying to eat breakfast. And the older brother is bouncing around doing his fantastical role-playing thing. And he makes the younger brother keep dropping his toast. Mm-hmm. And boy, boy, I felt it. I mean, it was hard for me to watch because I was feeling his disappointment with continuing to drop the toast, but it probably was just funny. You mentioned uh, before we started Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, mm-hmm. which is, uh, which I know Janelle hasn't seen, but like it's all about living food and all the really wacky things they do with food as a prop, essentially. Yeah. And it's very creative and a lot of comedy there. I kind of had this as a category I wasn't going to address, but it might, maybe it deserves mention, maybe it's this category, but when food is your characters. <laughs> I was thinking like Veggie Tales and certain episodes of The Muppet Show. Yep, well, you're not wrong, yeah. You can get a lot of puns with food that like, uh, let us join together and all the-, the Or they want to get married and then cantaloupe. Yeah, yeah, all that, that kind of thing. good yeah. stuff. Or um, <laughs> what's that one song? I never harmed an onion, so why does it make me cry? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> they're, they're full of food puns in that one. Yes, yes. Good. I found a way to categorize those things. Anyway, the, yeah, there are a few other funny food comedic moments, but suffice to say, food can be funny. And then I could think of other instances where food shows up in a story, but I didn't have a good category for it, so that's other. Okay. And they're just random things, like in the Captain America first movie, mm-hmm. remember when I think it's the general is trying to make a proposal to the main scientist, and he, he shows up and puts a steak in front of him, and oh. do you want the steak? And the guy, or the scientist says, I don't eat meat. So the general proceeds to eat it and says, you don't know how hard it is to get this good kind of a cut up here. Oh, okay. When you're like, he's interrogating the the captured not, uh, guy. Okay. He's trying to get info. And I guess the idea is like eating to... Uh, Entice, get under... Get under his skin Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I always thought of it as like an intimidation factor, but he offered him the food and he's like, okay, well, here, I'm going to eat it. You know, there's a weird thing. Like movies would do that where like there'll be like some sort of hostage situation and there'll always be like a meal. It's like this. It's like a inverted supper in some ways yeah well i guess you could be playing into the whole starvation aspect like when a certain space station captain is gets interrogated and he starts eating a sandwich and there's a question of whether the sandwich is poisoned yep, yeah and he hasn't been able to eat anything for a while yeah that one yeah 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 you know what i'm talking about or or another another famous uh show where like uh you dress the prisoner up and go on a beach and just having breakfast for some reason yeah. um, <laughs> Or you let him out of the cell for a little while and give him some breakfast cereal and he starts making this intimidating conversation while he's then asks for milk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Clearly you guys get the idea. Yes. <laughs> so one other thing that I will mention that I'm going to limit myself to because I could probably talk for another hour. I'm annoying myself because I can't remember the title, but the author Frederick Buechner wrote a series of books that have as one of the central characters, a strange person named Leo Beb. In the first book, he's setting up the action of the story, and there is a protagonist named Antonio Parr, and he has a girlfriend. And they're getting together to just hang out or to figure out what to do about this person named Leo Beb that they've heard about. And they order beef stroganoff, and they talk about stuff, and Antonio Parr gets upset and decides to go find Leo Beb. The story goes on, and... Chapters later, Antonio is thinking back to Beef Stroganoff Night and all the things that had set everything else in motion. And I thought, now if Frederick Buechner had just said, we ordered dinner, mm-hmm. well, okay, there you go. It was just, we ordered dinner, but it was Beef Stroganoff Night. All he's got to say is, we ordered Beef Stroganoff, and you know exactly what scene he's talking mm. about. So that that was just an interesting use of a concrete detail to mm-hmm. really help your mind attached to the story. Yeah. Well, listeners, we hope that uh, you didn't come into this podcast hungry. No. <laughs> you might leave it hungry. Yeah. My takeaway from all those, which are great, I'm more than I ever thought about food and stories, which is <laughs> awesome. But my gives my two takeaways as a creator is that food is very good at becoming a useful detail, either for creating a character or a moment or a setting. And it's humanizing. In most of these examples, we said it is really draws out the humanity of the people and the culture and whatever. And I think um, those are two things that it does kind of intuitively that we don't, I never really much thought about until we started analyzing it. Yeah. 
I concur. It's a flavor, but uh, I mean, it does say a lot about humanity's need to eat, <laughs> and what and, it says about us, what we, how we eat, and when we eat, and what we eat. Yeah, and the fact that it's not just a utilitarian thing. We we like having flavors and textures and smells associated with our food, and when it's a concrete thing that uh, can really help an audience find themselves in the story is like something they can identify with. Like, oh yeah, man, this is making me hungry. Yeah. <laughs> As I mentioned, I don't often see a superhero eat a lot of the examples where food is important i found were from stories from like a previous era Mm. where you might have to work harder to get food generally speaking now i think we don't see our superheroes eat very often partly because a lot of us are frustrated by our own limits of needing to eat Mm. or we wish we could be superheroes we wish we could do everything we need to and more without sleeping, without eating, oh, all that stuff. And so we make our superheroes do that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on the nicer side, food's not essential. In a lot of these superhero stories, it's, food's not critical to the story that you're telling. They're just moving from thing to thing, yeah. I guess one counterexample to that is in um, Captain America Civil War, that when um, Vision and Wanda have one of their first connections with when Vision's trying to cook Wanda's home, and it's like, I'm not sure I'm using the right ingredient or something or other. Which is interesting, of course, because he's an android, so he probably doesn't even need to eat, but he's <laughs> trying to do this very human thing. I don't know, it's an interesting moment. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All right. Well, that's a very uh, appetizing story school. I found it tasty. Yeah. So next is soundtrack. For our first soundtrack, I have it. I've been trying to pick a new unused game constantly, but I had to go back to Super Mario Kart for this one because it fits this topic perfect. This is um, called Happy Breakfast. And it's a very cheery song about breakfast done to uh, the Super Mario Kart. For some reason. For some reason. I don't know. It works, and I like it, but it's weird. It's remixed by Posu Yan, who used to be known just as Poe in some of the older remixes. And I hope that you enjoy. Hello, rise and shine. Don't you know the time? They will pass you by. Lots of things to do, strategies to think through, cause the race is soon. Start the day out right, with some fruit delight, joy with every bite. Mangoes and cherries, grapes and strawberries, yummy so very. Satisfied, no way. 
strawberries, yummy so very. Hopefully you are just kind of happy and not too hungry now. Yeah, that was a very pleasant song. Yes. I enjoyed that. Uh, next, we are going to go to, well, we'll start with Once Upon a Sentence. So last time we had this sentence from, well, I guess we'll, we'll read the sentence and then we'll see if who uh, knew what that was from. Away they all went, twenty couples at once, hands half round and back again the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping, old top couple always turning up in the wrong place, new top couple starting off again as soon as they got there, all top couples at last, and not a bottom one to help them. I think we had one person correctly guess that was from... Me! <laughs> and what was the book? <laughs> Sorry. A Christmas Carol. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Fezziwig's Party, isn't it? It is from Fezziwig's Party. So good job, Janelle. So that was from A Christmas Carol. But we're going to kind of change up uh, Once Upon a Sentence now. We're deleting Once Upon a Sentence and remaking it as Once Upon a Scene. And in this case... <laughs> Which I'm going to give the exact same thing. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to rename it. Okay. Um, you got to heavy remix it with lots of bass and wub wubs. <laughs> I don't know about wub, that. Wub, wub, wub. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to now take a quick little scene from some sort of visual media, movie, TV show, something like that, play it for you, and that will be your challenge for the month. See if you can identify what piece of media this comes from. Which means when a whole year, we didn't once get the stranger in there. But <laughs> How strange. I know how strange. How odd, yeah. Anyways, so Tim, can you go ahead and play us our first clip? Okay. Your mind's not on food. You're thinking about somebody with long eyelashes. And you're smelling that sweet perfume. <laughs> hey, whoa, it's burning over. You're burning the chow. Okay, there you go. What was that from? You can send your answers to derailtrains at gmail.com um, or uh, contact us on Facebook or Twitter or any of those things. You can even leave a comment on our website, but remember, you will be giving away the answer. So think carefully. Unless you give us a cipher and the key. Don't make it too complicated, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally, it is January, and we are going to go to our take on Tales. Why I say it's January? Because that's our annual book club book review month. 
Yes. We have our No Pressure Book Club. Which is very no pressure. Very no pressure. <laughs> sometimes low participation, at least the ones of us here, even Janelle, uh, she joins us on that. Actually, we uh, take turns reading the books for the, for our uh, No Pressure Book Club. And I think we've all read all of them this year, correct? I think we did, if I remember right. Well... I did not read 20th Century Boys. Yeah. We'll, oh, okay. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But yes, this was a uh, this is a very eclectic year for the book club. Yeah, which is kind of fun. These are all over the place, I feel like. So what's our first one, Tim? I actually don't have a list of them. If I remember right, the very first one was The Tempest. By, oh, by William Shakespeare. By William Shakespeare, indeed. All right. My memory of this one is kind of fuzzy, so I'll let one of you t- kind of give us a summary of what The Tempest is about. Let's see. Prospero is exiled onto an island and he's then taken over the island and he's hungry for revenge. And he has a daughter named Miranda who's never met a man in her life. And this bunch of people from the country that exiled Prospero gets shipwrecked on the island because Prospero has learned how to do magic and has created a storm to shipwreck them on the island. And all sorts of Shakespearean shenanigans ensue. Shakespearean yeah. shenanigans. It's one of those I had meant to read for a long time because people would mention the Tempest here and there. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what this is about, except there's a Tempest. It's a weird one. It is. It kind of falls within the fantasy category, I guess, of Shakespeare. But um, the memory is fuzzy for me because it's one of those that like, you would really want to read it and then go watch it, which I never did. And no, I, I, I really need to see a visual version of it because I think, I mean, there's some interesting things. I remember the ending being particularly strange. That just seems like it like wraps up in like Prospero, who's this one revengeary thing, kind of gets in, and then he kind of just changes his mind. At least my that's my memory of it. Maybe Janelle can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's basically something like that. He like I don't remember how it is he exacts revenge on the people he's targeting, but he doesn't kill them. I think he like confuses them or makes them feel sorrowful about something. Yeah, I think it's kind of like that. It. Well, and one of the people, the king that exiled Prospero was one of the ones that is shipwrecked on this the same island. And you know, we watched this thing about like some choices that a theatrical troupe made when they were doing, we didn't watch their whole performance. We, we watched some of their behind the scenes of their making of process. And they pointed out that like Prospero has this servant on the island that he kind of orders around. <laughs> In a horrible way. Yeah. And it's kind of ironic because he's complaining about how the king mistreated him, his servant, and now he has his own servant that he's mistreating. Mm-hmm. And it's a sort of cycle of... of um, oppression. Oppression, I guess. So maybe something along that is part of what changes Prospero's mind and why he doesn't wind up killing the king and everyone else. Like some Shakespeare, but I, well, like all Shakespeare, it works better if you see it, and I didn't. And I think as you see it expressed and you can see the the layers, I think it's one that I would appreciate more with more exposure to. Yeah. This was what we read at the beginning of last year. So it's a whole year removed from yeah. it. And yes, I'm not sure our opinions of it were very fleshed out at the time. Did you have anything that you really wanted to say about it, Janelle? I don't think so. I like Shakespeare generally. And the ending, I do remember, think or the Prospero's turnaround seemed kind of abrupt mm-hmm. partly because it takes place off stage interestingly yeah but i like shakespeare generally so i had fun reading it <laughs> i did i did enjoy reading it, but I, I felt like i was not understanding as much as i could mm. an, an interesting read but yeah it's one of those like we were left wanting a little something yeah. so the next one after that was 20th century boys which is actually a manga series so we just had nominated the uh, this was one of Greg's. No, this was Nathan's was nominated this, and we just had volume one. Uh, this is by Naomi Urosawa. 
And um, so, yeah, again, manga, Japanese graphic novel series. It's by volume one. I'm not even sure if he was referring to the first Tano Boken, which is, if you know manga, the, the regular like paperback size. Yeah. I wound up reading this in what's called the Perfect Collection, which has like two of those and it's like a little bigger yeah, size. Yeah, I read four of the small volumes that equals about what you had, I think. Yeah, and I read a little bit farther, like I think. I'm over halfway through the series at this point, okay. and that first volume is really just, it's not really standalone, it's just like an introduction to the series. It's, in a nutshell, it's really about two timelines, at least. The young, in about the 1960s, is a group of kids growing up, and they're having dreams of being superheroes and saving the world, and then also late 90s, they're all 30-something. Like at the turn of the century, basically, just like they're, it's 1999, yeah, essentially, true, yeah. and... And uh, they start getting learning about this conspiracy that is use this some of their stories that they wrote when they were kids about like an evil organization trying to take over the world, and it's actually happening. And it's actually happening. It's a fascinating setup. The characters are really good. I mean, really well. It's like a very compelling series. I didn't get as far as I got to. I need to finish it. I think. Yeah, it, it's hard to know what kind of genre to put it in, is because it's got some some very light, realistic sci-fi elements. You said it reminded you a lot of Lost, and I can certainly see that with the, like the flashbacks and the different and, and, and time like, periods and trying to change your perception of certain things. And it's like like realism plus. Like there's certain mystical things going on. Yeah, there's always some new conspiracy or mystery ongoing sort of thing. And it's, it's interesting how long he's able to keep this going. Like I said, the first few volumes is really just the setup. Oh yeah. Largely. Yeah. Um, and then you have to kind of have to keep going. And the fact that he is able to continually kind of have these little arcs of like resolving, here's a, mis- a long held mystery and here's the resolution of that. And trying to stop this like world from ending scenario. And it's interesting because underneath all this is this theme of basically like, Growing up and what happens to your dreams and mm-hmm. realism versus the childhood fantasies of things and it's it was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Yeah the the art style is the the type that tries to combine some aspects of realistic human features with a little bit more abstract. And sometimes when people combine that stuff, I don't think it's very flattering looking. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really not my favorite art style. But it's right on the border of like it kind of works for me. But yeah, it's definitely the ongoing, the way that it's drawn out. Janelle didn't make it through this. This is not one, you can't really read a manga together. (laughs) Not easily. And I kind of felt like the first volume kind of leans a little bit into some of the male humor. It does. There's some crudeness. Um, there's even a little bit more fan service. Fan service doesn't last super long, but it's in there in like the first volume. I think maybe to entice readers, to be honest. Well, yeah, early on, I'm like, oh no, it's gonna go like this, and they never did. Then, like, it almost no. fell off the map after like the first couple issues. Yeah, first few chapters. But it was it right. was annoying. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> shaking her head, she didn't have anything to contribute to that. Because well, I would say, if you have interest in manga, I think it's it's certainly worth reading. Yeah, it's I'm very good. I'm looking forward to finishing it for sure. Um, I know a previous guest here on on this podcast, Nate Chen, is a big fan of it and has talked about it a fair bit on his YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. So, um, after that, uh, it was Greg's turn, and he nominated "The Savage Tales of Solomon Kane by Robert <laughs> E. This is by Robert E. Howard, who is the creator of Conan the Barbarian, and this is definitely within the realm of pulp fiction. Yeah, this has uh, good news and bad news. I think. <laughs> 
So yes, it is very pulpy. Solomon Kane is this very interesting character, very memorable. He's a very memorable character. He is essentially sort of a vigilante puritan <laughs> that is that is exactly how you would describe him <laughs> he dresses in puritan garb with like you know the hat and all that kind of stuff i'm not even sure what time period i guess it's supposed to be like 1600s 1700s Something, I, I, yeah i don't remember but he car- he carries with him a revolver and a pistol mm-hmm. and he's kind of a holy avenger sort of character yeah and just goes around killing sometimes supernatural things, sometimes... Well, there's usually some sort of supernatural element. Yeah. So th- this book is a collection of a lot of his short stories yeah. that were... Short stories slash... Nah, I guess they're mostly stories. Yeah. Slightly longer length. Originally appeared in magazines, maybe serialized. And I think what I liked about it is that, like, we read just one story or two stories it's a very compelling he's a very interesting character. It's written in this very pulpy, like, just visceral sort of style. So it's it's fun that way. When you read all of them together, it's a lot. Of, it it's too much. It's so dark. Yeah, it gets and it gets darker. Like they seem to be in the in the collection chronologically as far as Solomon Kane's life. It seems like, mm-hmm. but they're they're always dark. But they get darker and darker. I feel like, and it's just like it's a little. It's yeah, like a flavor of it was kind of interesting as you get this character and get this sort of very pulpy. Oh, that's interesting, but. As a collection, it was, I think, a little much. Yeah, I think we only made it about two-thirds of the way through the book. I know we stopped before you said was, like, the dark one of the darkest stories. Yeah, there's one where he's, like, he's like he's almost not, yeah, it's not human. Va- vampire bats or something yeah. like that. Yeah, um, that one was, yeah. But we felt like, at a certain point, it was like, okay, we kind of get the flavor of the, this. Yeah, we, it doesn't get enough. anything new to it. It just keeps doing the same thing. And you had told us that as much. Yeah. That and uh, I suppose we should also note that there's several of these adventures that take place in Africa. And yeah, they're definitely, we would consider them racist yes. today. Yes. <laughs> A very not politically correct depiction of that continent and its inhabitants. So, you know, very, I think in a unique way specific to its time period. Yes. At the end of my version, they had like some details of Robert E. Howard's life. It's not like he was kind of uh, depressed at the end. You can just feel this sort of like, unsettledness like the world's horrible and when you fix it somehow yeah but there's not a lot of hope about it and it just it's kind of oppressive by the end but on the other i mean i think as a flavor for pulp and robbery howard maybe an episode a series or two might be worth reading but i'm not sure the whole thing unless you really love that sort of pulpy yeah i think i looked at the same book you did and i think they mentioned he was pen pals with I'm forgetting his name but the guy who created the cthulhu the Mm -hmm. what is his name um, uh, Lovecraft. Yes, Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. I think it was pen pals with them, and you know that kind of exploring like the dark underside of in a spiritual way, which is again, it's an interesting choice. I don't know that people would write this way today, and not just the the, the racist African yeah. stuff, but like the idea of this ancient evils that he's constantly encountering. And I just as a kind of a window into the air and that style, it was it was a good example of it. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, of that sort of that old school fancy with the dark gods and the, but again, and the I don't a- need that much races. of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The interesting good thing is that the good side did always win, mm-hmm. but it always seemed like it was just barely. Or yeah, you have to go down into the the mouth of death, and you could see all the evil and all the darkness, but you never really got how much more powerful the light was. 
it, it really like maybe the predecessor of some of these movies, like in order to fight the monster, you must become like the monster. It had some of that feel to it. Yeah, because Solomon Cain talked about being a servant of God and having this feeling of being led on by providence, essentially and to that confront was kind of these things. So yeah. that was interesting, but you could there was never any conversation about or depiction about who is God, what is the light side counterpoint he, to all well, the darkness. Well, the thing is, I think basically he was the agent of God, and he alone was the only thing standing between all these evils. Mm. I mean, it's not particularly theologically accurate Puritan. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, very true. But, yeah, again, I think ideas interesting, I think, as a collection is just too much. Yeah. All right, well, following up on that, we uh, went to someone who uh, does portray Christian ideas and fantasy in really interesting ways. It's been a while since we had touched Madeline Ingalls' Wrinkle in Time Quartet, or the Time Quartet, I guess is yes. what it's called. Um, but this book we were on was A Swiftly Tilting Planet. The third book. The third book read. in that series, yes. This was very enjoyable, although, like a lot of Ingalls' writing, fairly confusing. <laughs> Actually, not as bad as the previous one. I, I've Not as weird as the last book, I would say. I, the second book in that from series. From my memories of reading originally and my rereading it, it is... I think easily the best, strongest of the time. Oh, really? Ones. Even more than No Wrinkle in Time. I like it better than Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, okay, personally. Okay. How do you so? How do you summarize this story exactly? <laughs> um, there's a mad warlord who's going to basically like start a nuclear war, right? And through a series of kithing, basically sort of like time traveling into other people, Charles Wallace is supposed to find some way to stop it, but he doesn't really know how. Yeah, he's not really given a direction, just some vague ideas, understanding of, okay, there's trying to understand who this warlord is yeah. in South America, which very strange to have a warlord, a nuclear warlord in South America. But In Patagonia? Is that correct? No. I think it's Vespugia. Yeah. Yes. Uh, is that a real country? No. I don't think so. I don't believe so. Yeah. More politically correct to have a non-existent country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the different time travel stuff is very... Very interesting. Some, I mean, I could I, I can make complaints about she's a she's to use Doctor Who very timey wimey on connections sometimes, um, which is second time through was kind of frustrating to me because I'm like I couldn't quite make the last connections and maybe I wasn't supposed to I don't know because she's kind of okay with that from my understanding, but I think just the ideas and the themes and stuff are just there's some really neat stuff in it. What is bizarre to me about her writing style? We were reading concurrently with this yeah. for some of it. In our small group, we were reading her book, Walking on Water. And she mentioned how she didn't know how some of these elements were going to pull together. I don't know how you write a book like this without like having pre-planned outline of how all these connections happen. But apparently she did this some, somewhat organically and kind of through just happenstance of reading or something, found these connections, real life connections between what were the... Whales and South America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's not not like Wales is in like in the sea, but like Wales is in the country. Yeah, um, these Welsh immigrants or this Welsh mission or something. It was just interesting that she had to go find a real connection because like you're making all these things up anyways. But <laughs> I do think Ringle and Time is still the most accessible. I think Swift for the Tilling Planet is probably the most ambitious. Yeah, it is a very ambitious story, and it is fascinating. Some of her ideas about kind of letting go and letting. God kind of direct your paths, and because mm -hmm. like every time Charles Wallace tries to direct where he's going to kite or time travel or whatever, it, it turns out disastrously. And there's just the sort of generational impact of things, which remind me a little bit of—I don't think anyone else read it—but when we did the book club, um, *Descent into Hell*, there was this really fascinating 
it's very hard to explain because like that was a very kind of mystical book kind of like how time periods touch each other even though they're not actually concurrently happening yeah i mean she would use some of that and i feel like that was something walk in water she would talk about that a little bit just that there's a touching of things even across time this comes out in this book. Anyways, a lot of fascinating ideas. Um, Charles Wallace is a great character. Mm-hmm. Um, Kai thing is fun. I think if you you know if you're super logical, some of it you might push against, but I think it's completely worth reading. Yeah, very interesting blend of spirituality and time travel science. Like, yeah, no one writes like Madeline Langle. That's true. Do you have any other comments, Janelle? I loved it. I guess I feel less analytically about it, or I feel a little more comfortable just letting it go and. Letting the connections be intuitive. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed how she wove together so many different threads from so many different people's stories. And, and she did make you work a bit to figure out what the connections were. But for some reason, I enjoyed that. I would agree. I mean, the connections are very nice. Cool. All right. Well, then the next book was another from a recurring author, at least recurring on our book club uh, list. Uh, we return to the world of Earthsea. For the third book here, too, as well. That's right. I get another one by Ursula Le Guin. This book was, I have to, oh, Farthest The Farthest Shore. We, we originally had the wrong book. We realized, oh, no, wait, that's the fourth book. We need the third one. Uh, so The Farthest Shore. Difference from Tombs of a Tuan was the last one, which took place in one single location, island, or sea, for the most part. This one was back to kind of the more traveling the seas sort of thing uh, with our main character, Ged, who is now an older man. And the main plot is really that there's magic is leaving Earthsea, and they're trying to figure out why. So Ged and this young prince basically go on a journey to figure out what's, what's happening, why is kind of the life draining out of everything. It's kind of a very epic setup yeah. in some ways. Although, again, in unconventional ways, because that's the way Ursula Le Guin yeah. writes. Yes. Yeah, because it's kind of an epic setup, but it's still a very personal story. There's no mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. epic armies running towards each other. You know, it's, it's just two people kind of wrestling with philosophical issues and finally meeting one other person and wrestling with philosophical issues. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of setup that I feel like has been used in other mediums. It feels a little like Once Upon a Time-ish in some sense, mm-hmm. like the magic is going out, we're losing or, the spark. Or, or even some of the like never-ending story sort of oh, yeah, sort of yeah. things or the, or the nothingness, depending sure. on which version. It feels a little bit more... Because, like, it's not just magic. It also, in some ways, it's not quite reason because, like, all the, the people that this affects, they're not, like, descending into madness necessarily, but there's definitely a it's loss of... It's the will to live. The, yeah. the, the, the vivacity, the vivaciousness of life is kind of falling away. Like Everything's becoming grayer. Yeah, yeah. And I think for the Earthsea books, I think this one has the most, it's in some ways the most abstract thematically. Like I think it's, I think it's interesting, and she's saying a very I think a very interesting and mostly true thing. But I think it's harder to put it. You almost need the book to kind of encapsulate. It. It's hard to put into words easily. I think yeah. what she's exactly saying mm. or trying to say. Yeah, uh, it would be hard to really do a, a dissect of of that, especially without talking in detail about the ending. I yeah. feel like I know some of the thrust of it was people were trying to escape death mm-hmm. and the balance of the way the world had to operate was that death had to exist. And to that end, boy, the eerie scene with going into the land of death and mm-hmm. closing the river of death, basically. Yeah. Ursula Gwen's writing style, she's a very good writer, very memorable images. I think we said that every time we've done a book of hers. 
And even though she comes from a non-Christian worldview for us, like she still says a lot of true things, I feel like. Like she's mm. very perceptive. Yes. Yes. Definitely there's plenty you could chew on. So what do you think? We've had three Earthsea books. If someone were which one do you think is the most accessible? I would still say a Wizard of Earthsea. I would agree with that. It has the most traditional like young man goes into a bigger world trying to seek out for himself. I mean and it turns some of those ideas on its head for sure. I mean, Ged makes some pretty big mistakes and yeah. then his whole worldview is challenged over the course of that story. But the the format of it is still fairly, I think, accessible. But this I definitely enjoyed. I've enjoyed every single one of yeah. the Earthsea books we've and read. And we'll so probably far. get Dahanu the Dahanu last. one eventually, yeah. Yep, I think so. All right. Well then finally to close out the year, we went to one of your favorite authors next. Yes. We went to The Gambler, which is just a short story, well, novella, I guess, that I've been wanting to read just because it's Dostoevsky. Fyodor Dostoevsky? Yeah, and the, I read the, the author you named your child after? Yes. <laughs> um, but I had, I had not read it. I've read all his major novels, or his major post-conversion novels. He has a couple pre-gulag novels. Did he wind up in a gulag? Or he was in prison for a while for trying to over- being part of an anarchist group, I believe. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, Gambler was after that, too. But I, I've seen it around, like, ah, oh, Gambler sounds interesting. You know that Dostoevsky had trouble with gambling addiction at some point. R- Gambler weighs wise wedding ring at some point. I feel I should mention that this this book, The Gambler, has uh, actually nothing to do with Kenny Rogers. So <laughs> don't look for country music in this one. And again, it's been a long time since I've read the—I really need to read one of his major novels again. So it's— I. I was talking before a podcast that I don't always, always remember scenes real well after a number of years. So I don't know how well I can compare it to the old stuff. Mm. But this is basically about Russians outside of Russia. And I, I read somewhere that this is kind of his only kind of Russians abroad story. That was kind of his idea. Okay. Um, which gives you that sort of uh, Victorian air different than some of his other novels. I can kind of see that. I mean, it, is, uh, I mean, it takes place in France. Or where, where do, oh, I where, don't remember now. I'm trying to think Germany? where Rulenzenberg, or maybe it is Germany, Rulenzenberg, because he goes to France later. But it does kind of have that exotic feel of like, okay, it's not a, a spy novel, but you know how like- We're James, broad. And we're broad. A, yeah, it's, it's not like James Bond, the espionage stuff, but it's like that feeling of being in a foreign place. So we're in this gambling town, basically. Called Rulenzenberg, which yes. <laughs> I didn't even think about until toward the end. It's like, oh, roulette is literally in the name of this town. <laughs> And then this Russian family that's hard up for money for reasons we don't know at the beginning. There's this French guy and this British guy and some other characters. It starts with this very inner and the main characters, Alexei, is this um, tutor for the, this Russian family. And you spend the first half of this novella basically trying to figure out what is the relationship between all these people. Yeah, it really just kind of throws you into the beginning of it, which you've said is kind of similar to his some of yeah. his other books, which and I, I know, guess is his thing. Just his thing. Like, you just slowly unwind, like, oh, like your 100 pages. I remember the first book I've read of his, Brother Krasimov, and like, it took me like 100 pages to figure out what in the world is going on. Well, and in this one, it takes like four chapters or so before you actually even find out who what the narrator's name is yeah. <laughs> or, or what's his relation to all these So people. it takes a little bit of patience, but simultaneously, that setup creates this drama because you're like, it's a mystery. You're unwrapping this, why do they need money and what, does, what are they here for and why is the uncle so, or the grandfather so mad and, or the uncle, I guess, what is it? It's the general. The, the, the general. general. Yeah. The general. Yeah. And all kinds of stuff happens. And there's a weird love story in the middle of it. But also then there's this very, some very interesting kind of tragic scenes about gambling, about people who just kind of go and kind of have fun, then they win, they get kind of this buzz, and then they lose just 
everything they own. Yeah, it really does. You could tell this is written by someone who understands the psychology of gambling, mm-hmm. the how it messes with your head and the addicting qualities yeah. of it. And I think there's also some elements from his other book, that that idea that there's a lot of very conflicted characters, characters who want to do something but can't or can't do something and wish they could. Very Roman 7 sort of, like, what I want to do, I wish I couldn't. You know, like, the love story feels that way. And even Lexi himself, where he, like, runs off with this girl who's just going to use up all his money. And he knows he's, she's going to use up all his money, but he can't stop because pride or there's a lot of and that's very normal there's these relationships that on one hand seem very strange but i think it's how people actually act yeah Yeah. i mean it's certainly literary in the sense you could make your own interpretations and we we did afterwards (laughs) kind of talk about okay why did he do this was it because of this or that or yeah but there's just a lot of internal angst and confusion inside a lot of the characters They, they all do they like do something and the next day they'll do something completely the opposite. It feels a little bit of like the uh, the rich classes are crazy or what? there's yeah. some saying that, like that. All these rich people who are really obsessed with maintaining money in some way are just kind of nuts. Nick and I have been going full blown into weekly hijack spewing mode. Do you have what something you want to jump in here, Janelle? It felt like a soap opera to me. And it felt also a little bit like a Jane Austen novel. And I say that because all of the action happens by people talking. Mm -hmm. I just found that interesting how upper class and contained it was in that way. And I think a lot of, I think, yeah, that that's like dialogue is drama is a lot of Dostoevsky. There's just Mm -hmm. a lot of just... Yeah, it is funny. It did feel like kind of a, a drama of manners or mm-hmm. of high society stuff without like, there is a romance, but it's not really a romantic book. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Jane Austen without the romance <laughs> element, I think is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> that, and it had a uh, initially hilarious grandmother character. Oh, the, it's, I mean, if you would film this, that scene would be like, Perfect. <laughs> I think they did try to do some movie inspired by it at some point. But I don't oh, really? know if it's any good or not. Huh, we'll do a modern version. Yeah, but I mean, even her, she takes a tragic character arc in some way. Because there's there's this fine line, Dostoevsky, between comedy and tragedy. I think sometimes, mm. like people can be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I other thing I thought was interesting about the book is that it's titled The Gambler, and about halfway through, I was going, "Who is the gambler?" <laughs> By the end, I think it's clear it's the it's the narrator, Alexis Ivanovich. But it seems like everybody at some point wants to gamble or thinks about gambling. The grandmother gambles. Yeah. The general is accused of gambling. Polina gives Alexis money to go gamble with, etc. And I think they're gambling just thematically as well a lot with, you know, how are we going to get out of this? And we just we're risking things in order to lose it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up. Yep. So, yeah, uh, interesting book to round out this very like, <laughs> interesting said, collection of books. It's all over the place. I mean, we did have a couple with uh, the fantasy, the books in the middle that were kind of written for younger readers. We That's kind of in our wheelhouse. But we had manga. We had Shakespeare. We had Dostoevsky. We, had, we were all pulpy, over the place. Yeah, dark pulpy, pulp. dark pulpy. Yeah, all over the place this year. Well, we're probably running long, Nick. But real quick, did you have any other books that you read this year you I want will, to talk about? I will try, just because... We just got done with it. My version of Gambler came also with The Double, which is another one of his famous novellas. Okay. And I'll just say, I'm glad I didn't pick that one because that one's way tougher to read. It's one of those that, like, it's kind of a slog to read. It's about this minor government official who ends up 
he finds someone who's exactly it's basically him, but running around and it kind of starts stealing all his friends and his job and everything. But the dialogue that it's it's hard to explain even the point of it. I mean, it's almost talking about the way social society at that point, and I think still nowadays, wants to cram you into a certain spot, except if you don't fit there, then you're just really awkward. And so, like, this character is really awkward. He rambles, and his language is really stilted and weird. And it's like, I hear it in the Russian, it's just just as bad or worse. <laughs> but then, like, this good version of him, who's very suave and can play all the social games, starts stealing all the all his social capital in some ways. Like, mm. in love with a girl that he kind of loves but can't even, he just he's just a disaster as far as he, socially. So it's almost that, like, that... It's like a real representation of that you want to split yourself between like what you're supposed to be to fit into society and who you actually are. Mm. Anyways, hard read. I don't know if I can recommend it unless you really love that sort of thing. Okay. But it was a I was glad to have read it. Sure. So I'll just throw that in there since it's kind of in the same wheelhouse as the gambler. I guess Dostoevsky thought it was one of his most important ideas. He always wanted to re like redo it, take the idea, but write it better. I guess he didn't like the book itself, but he thought it was a very important concept whatever he was going for interesting yeah well my big read of 2022 was <laughs> the first of the wheel of time books yes a series that nick has talked about for years and years for as long as i've known him i don't know i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> the first one was the eye of the world is that correct <laughs> yeah well you read it tim yes the eye of the world yes well so i'd always nick has talked about wheel of time series for like i said all this time um it was a little disappointing. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to say. Now, I will say it is very, every time I would sit down to read it, it was very readable. Like the pages would just flow really quickly. I really liked his writing style. I never felt like he did he have was, a very good writing style. Yeah. For what I had gotten, the impression was that he could be very detailed about certain things. And maybe he gets even he more. He does so, get a little more bogged down in some stuff. More bogged down in later books. But. I've certainly read other books. I'm thinking of Aragon that I got way more bogged down in details yeah. than I did in this one. He's not particularly he's not particularly technical, but he can be very detailed. Yeah. The downside of it was, I guess this is more of a pet peeve of mine. When I want to go into a fantasy book, I want to like enjoy the adventure of it. Yeah. At least to a certain extent. But some writers I've noticed feel like if a little conflict is good, then a lot is really engaging. And... I felt like in a, in a lot of this book, there was a long haul where I was like, none of these characters like each other. <laughs> like everyone's distrustful of, and it's not that they don't have good motivations, but even the characters who knew each other seemed like they were constantly irritable or picking fights. And not that that's not a bad thing. I mean, the hobbits get annoyed with each other yeah. from time to time, but there's, you start from the certain level of respect. And I think it was meant to be kind of humorous, but even in the beginning, it seemed like everyone was kind of dysfunctional with each other. You know, it's interesting. I read one time Brandon Sanderson talking about Robert Jordan because he grew up reading Wheel of Time and then became a crazy fancy writer himself. Uh-huh. And saying, he pointed out some scene in the second book where he's like, and there's like five layers of conflict going on at the same time. And he thought how amazing he could do it all at the same time. So <laughs> it, it seems like that's one of those things that either you... You connect with or, or you, you don't. don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that was that was a problem. And I was, to be honest, a bit disappointed in the climax because you would think after reading like 600 pages of this book, you'd be really set up for what the climax would be. 
And yet I was still confused throughout <laughs> most of it. It's like, what is going on? And you realize later what had happened. And I was like, if I had understood what was happening, I yeah. would have enjoyed this final confrontation a whole lot more. Yeah. So those are, those are some of my complaints about it. I'm intrigued enough. Like there's definitely some plot hooks I could tell. Like this is stuff for a future book that yeah. like, I'd like to see like the, the main characters accidental visits and meeting with like the prince and, princess and queen of mm -hmm. of the realm was yeah. highly entertaining. I would love to see more of those characters and be curious to see the direction most a lot of these other characters go mm -hmm. on because it's definitely you, you feel at the end it is a conclusion but it, all these characters journeys have really just started. Yeah. So it's a beginning but not the beginning. Yes. As, as the beginning of the book goes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so, yeah, I have very mixed feelings. I'm sorry, Nick, oh, for to trash one of your favorite books. No, that's books. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. because I remember even back in high school when we were reading it, one of my friends, the book four, it's like a book of four or five, one of them, which takes like 100 pages to get out of where they are. And then later on, it's like sometimes it'll be 100 pages till like Randall Thor will show up in a book. Mm. And so there's definitely is this divide between people who are okay with that like hey i'm just on for adventure of everything and people are like but the stuff i want to hear you're delaying too long mm -hmm. so i think you've just hit on some of those things that tend to separate some of the especially as it goes on people who like i have a, another friend he loves eye of the world and that's the only one he cares about <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. that's bizarre <laughs> So yeah, so. I don't know. We'll see if I wind up doing another one. It just it took me like ten months to read that thing. Yeah. I, I would like to do other stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we'll see. I'll throw in real quick, like five seconds. I also read and mentioned the death of Ivan Ilovich. Just read it, guys, by Leo Tolstoy. Ah, oh, that's right. We mentioned, yeah, but it's it's super short. I read it like while we were driving to our vacation spot this summer. Because you would read a depressing Russian novel on vacation. Well, I read that novel on vacation. I also read Heir to the Jedi, like the Star Wars thing. Okay. So I balanced it out. Okay, there you go. That's, that's Ivan was better. That's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any books from 2022 that you want to talk on real quick, Janelle? Yeah, so I read a tiny book I think aimed at, well, I'm not sure what grade, either middle school or earlier, called Missing May by Cynthia hmm. Ryland. I think it received a Newbery Award or something. Okay. Small little book. I read it in an evening, probably while you guys were recording a podcast episode. <laughs> and it's this short, powerful punch of a little book. It's a story of recovering from grief, basically. Okay. This young girl that got adopted by her aunt and uncle. They live out in this trailer in West Virginia. And... The aunt dies, and there's this weird boy from school that knows where you could go do a seance, and he and she and the uncle go to try to do this, and they get disappointed. The person's not there, and they basically just journey back, and it's the story of the uncle figuring out how to move on and the girl figuring out how to cry over okay. her aunt's death, and Ms. Rylant uses images and style and character moments to to tell all this in a way that felt easy to connect with and and relatable and powerful and and communicated a lot of emotion with with the short means so enjoyable read i thought it was effective if sad bittersweet well what's it called again missing may missing may i have to remember that i'm sure there's a couple students that would enjoy that Nice. Well, Nick, I think this will go long, which is not uncommon for our book club episodes. Yeah. But we actually went through those pretty quick, all things considered. Yeah, I think so. 
All right. So uh, everyone, that is the end of our take on tails. I'm not sure we'll leave here very quickly. Yeah, we haven't actually eaten yet. I know. We got to eat something. We got to eat something. Yeah. We're going to go do that pretty soon, but let's tell them how they can get a hold of us or our podcasts. Okay. Well, our website is derailedtrainsofthought.com. All of the episodes of this podcast, Derail Trains of Thought, as well as our other two podcasts, The Weekly Hijack and Let's Finally Watch This, where we talk about TV and movies, respectively, in very different formats. Yeah. Uh, so you go check those out at derailedtrainsofthought.com. And you can always email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com for any sort of questions or comments or you want to guess our quote or our scene. Other than that, I think we'll be on our way. Try to order something. Hopefully, yeah. podcast provides with some. All our money. episodes are also available. I should mention on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and wherever fine podcasts are found. Um, but I should set up my soundtrack real quick yes. before we go. I've got a remix from Kirby Superstar because Kirby loves to eat. Yes, and this remix is called Food Frenzy, which feels very appropriate. It's funny. I don't usually listen to heavy metal, but if you give me a good video game melody that or melody that I enjoy, I might just head thrash along with it if you put it in a metal garb. Uh, that's what this is. This is uh, the remixer is Game Metal. I think he's uh, got Game Metal has got a YouTube channel, but this is from OC Remix. And um, yeah, it's food frenzy. I hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, well, it's at the end of the episode, so you can just skip it. Yeah. All right. I guess with that, we're out of here. This has been Nick. And this is Tim. And your guest, Janelle. Thanks for listening, folks. Adios. Bye-bye. Au revoir. Au revoir. I don't know. (laughs) Au revoir. There we go. There we go. Better. Thank Thank you. you.